Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's been 10 days since the leak of a draft decision by Justice Samuel Alito that overturns Roe v. Wade. And since then, how many times have you heard that a clear majority of Americans support abortion rights unlike a majority of the justices, which was affirmed again last week by a Pew survey? Does the conflict between popular opinion and what the court decides affect your view of our nation's highest court? We talked to Slate's Dahlia Lithwick about whether this or other recent events are causing the court to lose the public's trust. And we want to hear from you. Do you have faith in the Supreme Court? Join us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Justice Samuel Alito, in his leaked opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, writes, We cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences, such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. Well, public reaction has been swift to his draft. Demonstrations decrying the opinion have taken place all over the country. California has joined other states in drafting legislation to create safe havens for reproductive rights, while states that support the opinion have said they intend to ban and even criminalize abortion if Roe is overturned. That we're at this point may come as a surprise to some, given that a clear majority of Americans support abortion rights, and several of the justices who signed on to the opinion overturning Roe reassured senators that they knew it to be settled law during their confirmation hearings. So this hour, we're asking... Has the court's actions on Roe caused you to question the credibility of the Supreme Court? Or maybe it was something else. Allegations that a justice's spouse supported the January 6th insurrectionists or that Merrick Garland never got a fair hearing. If you have lost faith in the court, what would you like to see done to restore it? You can post your thoughts at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum is where we are. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Joining us today is Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate. Lithwick writes the jurisprudence column for Slate and is the host of the podcast Amicus. She recently co-authored an op-ed piece in the Washington Post titled, The Supreme Court's Abortion League Points to the Triumph of Politics Over Law. Welcome back to Forum, Dahlia. It's always good to be with you, Mina. Really appreciate being with you, too. And so you have written about this draft opinion, and you have written that this opinion on Roe, that the court has shown a, quote, staggering lack of regard for its own legitimacy. What do you mean by that? I guess maybe the best way to set the table on this is to bracket 
the political problems with this opinion from just a larger public concern about the legitimacy of the institution itself. And I think in a way, (laughs) this one mushes those together. Uh, But if you really want to start on the institutional questions, and you, you know, kind of flicked it a little bit of this in your introduction, it's useful to remember that even before we were getting what looked to be pretty partisan and pretty political opinions this term, this term also opened with the court having the lowest public approval rating since Gallup has been polling. And some of that is for political ideological reasons, but a lot of it is for institutional reasons. And it's Mm. things like the so-called shadow docket. So we have massively consequential cases that are being decided at midnight with unsigned orders. We don't even know what the vote was with no reasoning. Things like that Things like the justice's own conflicts of interest. So Clarence Thomas sitting on on a case where his wife, uh, we later learned, clearly had an interest in the outcome. All of those issues, including justices flying around to partisan events, really go to these institutional legitimacy questions, which are quite separate from the political legitimacy questions. And so maybe it's helpful to unbraid those two because I think in a way this plus the leak is kind of a perfect storm of all three Hmm. massive body blows to the court. Yes. Also, one other thing that you you didn't mention, and I think it's because it's kind of a, a question that has multiple answers, but this question of the court following its own precedents um, and whether or not the fact that it goes so against its own precedent here in Roe contributes to to its, I guess, decline in public opinion. That That's exactly right. And in fact, one of the reasons that in 1992, when the Supreme Court looked pretty likely to, if not overturn directly, massively erode Roe v. Wade in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, one of the factors that the justices took into account when they actually used that case to reinforce that Roe is still good law is this issue of public legitimacy and the undergirding question of if you're just going to start overturning precedent because the composition of the court has changed, the public is going to start to think that the court is a purely ideological institution. And so you're exactly right to pull out that irony. The reason the court didn't overturn in 1992, didn't overturn Roe v. Wade, was exactly because it's another body blow to the legitimacy of the court when the court overturns precedent just because somebody retired and somebody new came on. And so that Mm. is absolutely one of the, the things that the court looks at when they overturn precedent. And it's also one of the reasons that when Justice Alito in this opinion says, oh, don't worry about Obergefell, marriage equality, don't worry about Griswold, contraception, those things are safe, those are precedents. The American public not unreasonably says, well, says who? (laughs) They're precedents today, but you've just proven that this can get disturbed you know, at the drop of a hat. So it is a thing that Americans worry about when the court does it. 
But that isn't necessarily to say that the court doesn't reverse itself, right? I mean, Plessy v. Ferguson created the notion of separate but equal, was overturned in the 50s, and Brown v. Board of Education. But ultimately, the court, I think, was able to maintain or at least restore a level of public opinion here that is probably healthier than it is today. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And and what you are saying is, is lies at the heart of part of what uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh was doing at oral argument in Dobbs, which is this Mississippi case, and certainly part of the Alito opinion uh, in Dobbs that we now have the draft opinion, is this idea that, oh, come on, we reverse ourselves all the time. When you're wrong, you're wrong, right? He calls Roe egregiously wrong from when it was decided. So he's trying to say, this is just error correction, and the court engages in error correction all the time. Part of the problem is, you know, just descriptively, this would be the first time that court was reversing precedent to take away rights rather than to grant more rights. So when you look at Plessy, when that's reversed, it's to afford massive, massive constitutional protection uh, to Americans. This is the opposite. This would be taking away rights. And this is, by every account that I've read, the first time that's happened. So that's one thing. I think maybe more sort of to the point, what he says is, and this seems like it's wonky, but I think it's important. What he says in his opinion is, look, it's not for us to worry about what the public thinks or the public cares about. We're just here to do the law. If you don't like it, get out and vote, you know, vote and your state legislatures can fix this. And that's particularly disturbing coming from a majority that if you look at Shelby County that eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, and Mm -hmm. you look at Brnovich that eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, and if you look at um, uh, all of the sort of line of cases that have blessed partisan gerrymandering, that have blessed Citizens United pouring uh, money, dark money into the election system, this is a court that's made it really hard (laughs) for people to get out and vote. And so there's a paradox here where he says, look, you know, don't ask the unelected judiciary to fix your problems, get out there and ask the elected branches. This is a court that over the last two decades has really eroded the ability to get your elected branches to respond to you. One of the other things that I was talking about in my introduction is the fact that this leaked opinion is at odds with a clear majority of the public. We saw a Pew Pew survey last week that found that 61% of Americans still believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And and I'm wondering about what you think of what Alito says in terms of immunity to public opinion and how much public opinion does or should factor into the issues that the court considers, or even if that was a consideration in its design. Yeah, I mean, I think you're pointing to a really important structural feature of if you think about these three branches of government checking each other, it was very important that you had a branch of government that didn't have to uh, respond to majority opinions, right? I mean, the reason we got Brown v. Board, the reason we got Roe v. Wade in many ways is because we had a counter-majoritarian check on two branches that by definition, right, have to respond to the polling. And so it's really important to say, this is 
a feature. You know, this is something that we want is for the court to not feel as though it is uh, beholden to public opinion. And that is why we have lifetime tenure, right? That's why justices can't be removed uh, unless they meet the very high bar of impeachment because basically the framers wanted to insulate them from public opinion that could turn on a dime. And so you're exactly right to say, this is why there is a counter-majoritarian court. I think it's slightly complicated again, when you have a court that feels like it's working hand in glove with minoritarian government in order to preserve preserve minority rule in the other mm. branches. In other words, everything I just said about Shelby County and vote uh, fraud and gerrymandering and dark money, all of those things have been gifts from the court to political branches that feel that they can't win uh, by majority. And so they are trying to entrench uh, minority will in a way that feels like they're working together with the court to achieve those outcomes. I think maybe the clearer or most sort of elegant way I can frame that is if you look at the six Republican appointees currently on the US Supreme Court, five of the six were uh, uh, chosen by presidents who in fact lost the majority of, of the vote who by virtue of the electoral college became president. Then they were confirmed by a Senate that is so wildly malapportioned, and you know this better than me, that if you're in California, you have the same number of senators that you have in South Dakota, right? So you have a minoritarian president by virtue of the electoral college, a minoritarian Senate by virtue of malapportionment, then blessing a minoritarian Supreme Court. And I think all of those legs of the stool are working together to make it seem as though polling is not just immaterial, but that polling can't fix anything. Mm. We'll hear more from Dahlia Lithwick and you, our listeners, after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Are you a puzzler? Tomorrow, we'll be talking to people obsessed with puzzles and what it can do for our brains and hearts. And we want to hear from you on what your go-to puzzle is. Jigsaws, Wordle, scavenger hunts. You can share your favorite puzzle and what you love about it ahead of the show by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. 
This hour, we're talking about the Supreme Court, in particular how you feel about it and whether or not the court's recent actions on Roe have caused you to question the court's legitimacy or caused you to lose faith in the Supreme Court. We're talking about it with Dahlia Lithwick. She writes the Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns for Slate and is the host of the podcast Amicus. And you, our listeners, are weighing in. Mary writes, my level of trust in the Supreme Court is now at an all-time low. Although my opinion was already hugely damaged when Roberts undermined the Voting Rights Act, at this point I have no respect for any decision the court issues. It is tragic Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not act on President Obama's appeal to step down when he had the brief chance to replace her. Appalling that McConnell has gotten away with blocking Obama's last appointment. Who can have trust in such a biased system. Dahlia, I think what we're hearing from our listeners is that in some ways Roe is maybe even a last straw because there's been a lot of things. There have been a lot of things that have led up to this moment that have chipped away people's trust in the court. And Mary's referencing here some of the bare-knuckled, egregious, whatever you want to call the politics that got some of the justices on the bench. Um, And you reference some of those as well. I do want to ask you about McConnell and about Merrick Garland to start, just to go back a few few more years. And, and I'm wondering if you think that President Obama, uh, his nomination of current Attorney General Merrick Garland after the sudden death of Justice Scalia, you know, he followed the same process every president followed before him and yet never got his hearing. And, and, and what effect do you think that has on the court's legitimacy? Do you think it does? I mean, I would say two things. One, that was certainly unprecedented at the time when, uh, you know, President Obama picked Merrick Garland, who, by the way, was significantly older uh, than probably his preferred nominee. He was very much a consensus candidate. There were Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee when Elena Kagan's name came up, who said, oh, we'd never vote for her. She's way too liberal, but we'd take a Merrick Garland. In other words, this is a guy that, you know, they sort of liked until they didn't like him. And um, you're quite right. It was unprecedented. It was blocked for months um, until the election. And I would also say going into that election, uh, we heard from folks like Ted Cruz. We heard from folks like Chuck Grassley, John McCain all said, oh, let's be really clear, if Hillary Clinton wins this election, we're holding that seat open for another eight years. So there was, I think, a presumption that that Scalia seat was a Republican Hmm. seat to fill regardless who won the election. And and this is the kind of sad coda to that story, which is Democrats in the Senate did not campaign on the fact that that was a vacant seat. They didn't campaign on the fact that there were two octogenarians and one nearly octogenarian on the court. They just kind of gave this argument to Donald Trump. And Senator Clinton, I'm not sure, really pushed this argument. So in some sense, to me, what happened to Merrick Garland is a template for what we're seeing now, which is this massive enthusiasm gap where you had the Republicans I agree with you, acting in ways that were unprecedented and shocking, not even giving Garland, you know, courtesy meetings or a vote. And you had Democrats responding by saying, "Eh, let's talk about something else. And that asymmetry really played out in the election by a two to one margin. Uh, Folks who said the Supreme Court was the most important voting issue to them broke for Donald Trump. A lot of them didn't like him, but broke for Donald Trump. So again, that asymmetry 
has been playing out for years and years and years. As you said, we could have seen this coming with Shelby County. We could have seen this coming with Citizens United. We certainly could have seen this coming, uh, not just with Trump's three court nominees, but his decision to put up Amy Coney Barrett as the voting was already happening in uh, the election after hearing from the party, uh, you can't seat a president in an election year. Every one of those things shows us the sort of enthusiasm gap. And I think in a weird way, the reason you're describing how we all feel surprised is because we hadn't connected all those dots together. Well, Carol writes, when did I lose confidence in the Harvard-educated Catholic Supreme Court? Maybe when far-right sexual harassing Clarence Thomas was appointed, claimed to be the best qualified person. Perhaps when Sandra Day O'Connor decided that women should face undue burdens in seeking abortion care, but never met a burden that was undue. Certainly when Senator McConnell decided that he could hold up President Obama's appointment for nine months, but rushed through Trump's third appointment to ensure the conservative takeover. Besides, it's nothing new. The Supreme Court has always comforted the comfortable, afflicted the afflicted. Supporting slavery, segregation, taking away voting rights, and declaring corporations are people, while apparently women are not. Wow, there's a lot of strong feelings out there. And, well, speaking of the Senate, as you just were, can you just talk about what advice and consent means in the nomination process? Because it just really feels like the process we're watching is so strange. <laughs> I don't know what a better word to use there. No, strange works. Uh, I think strange is fine. And I think for most of history, um, advice and consent meant pretty much if the person was fit, uh, you voted yes. And both Justices Scalia and Justices Ginsburg speak fondly of, despite the fact that they were both polarizing nominees, uh, both were overwhelmingly confirmed across party lines because they were just deemed to be fit um, as Senator Lindsey Graham used to put it, um, you know, the president gets to pick the court and you don't get to oppose them just because, uh, you know, you don't like the party or the president. Those days are gone. And as a consequence, we've seen these razor thin margins. Uh, I guess it goes to, to Carol's note, you know, part of what really happened to change that was a series of whether it was uh, Robert Bork uh, being defeated uh, because there was a pretty strong campaign by uh, Democrats to, to uh, defeat that nomination, or whether it was what they felt was the grave injustice uh, done uh, to Clarence Thomas in his hearings. We've really seen those margins become two, three, four vote margins. And we can certainly say of the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, which feel like they were eight years ago, but in fact concluded only a few weeks ago, that that was by every measure and by every sort of serious uh, observer of absolutely perfectly qualified nominee, more qualified than virtually everyone else sitting on the court who squeaked by uh, on a narrow margin because we are now in a world where this is just blood sport. So advice and consent now means team and tribe and personal interests above all. And if you have to manufacture reasons uh, to perform outrage at somebody, you do that too. But the days of kind of assuming good faith in both the appointment and in the nominee, I think are long gone. Let me go to caller Greg in Palo Alto. Hi, Greg. Hi, Mina. Hey, um, I appreciate that you've raised these issues. 
Um, your guest has really talked about politics involved in the choices and the decisions of the uh, Supreme Court. I think we need to get down to the real fundamental truth. This was a religious decision. The only reason to deny a woman a right to an abortion is a religious decision, a religious preference. And um, fundamentally, uh, the Constitution prohibits our government from establishing religion, part of our Constitution. Supreme Court is a branch of our government. These people, these men and women who become part of the court, swear to uphold and defend our Constitution. Hmm. I believe in this case they've violated that oath, and a violation of the oath is a reason for impeachment. Oh, I great. think these people are are not basing their their decisions based upon politics. They're basing it on religious. Decisions. Well, Greg, thanks. Let me see what, what Dahlia Lithwick thinks of what you're saying and its impact. Well, I mean, I want to commend uh, Greg for naming it because I think it has been a really, really fraught issue. Um, those of us who cover the Supreme Court often joke that we can more readily talk about the sex lives of a prospective justice than we can talk about their religious lives. It's been a really thorny issue. Um, folks may remember from Justice Barrett's confirmation hearing and particularly her confirmation when she was elevated uh, to the appeals court to the Seventh Circuit that Senator Feinstein tried to probe writing that Barrett had done sort of unabashedly saying, I'm trying to think through what you do when your religious doctrine is in tension with constitutional doctrine. In other words, Amy Coney Barrett put that uh, onto the record. And you may recall when Senator Feinstein tried to probe that very question, uh, not only was she sort of pilloried across uh, the ideological spectrum, uh, law professors on the left were as tough on Senator Feinstein as law professors on the right, but it was seen as wildly inappropriate in violation of constitutional bans on religious tests in office. And so I think that there's a way in which this issue is deemed so hot, such a third rail, that we don't talk about it at all. And I think what Greg is saying, and by the way, it's not just that nominees are, are religious or that this Alito opinion talks about, you know, fetal personhood, which is a religious notion without a doubt. It's not a notion that has a ton of support in, in secular thought, but that this goes back to cases like Hobby Lobby. This goes back to the cases around um, uh, houses of worship in COVID, which were decided with huge solicitude to people of faith and no solicitude uh, to state actors who were trying to keep people safe. So this is a longstanding theme that's been going on at the court for a number of years. And I would just suggest that because we haven't had a really open, healthy national conversation about what that means, uh, you get opinions like this that are absolutely freighted with religious um, ideas and a deep sense that nobody knows how to talk about it. So I completely agree that, you know, if you are say a Jewish woman who doesn't think that there should be an all out ban on abortion because Jewish law absolutely says um, the life and the health of the mother are paramount. There's no such thing as a 15 or six week 
marker, uh, you have actually a pretty credible <laughs> religious liberty case that the state cannot decide for you that your fetus is a person if your faith thinks it's not. That's probably a, a line of challenges we're going to see coming forward. But I think Greg is completely descriptively correct that if we don't know how to talk about faith and religion in the Supreme Court, if we choose to be awkward and weird about that conversation, this is going to keep happening. We're going to have religiously inflected opinions that nobody can name as such. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, and you, our listeners, about the issues that are affecting your view of the Supreme Court, bad or good, whether you have lost faith in it and what would make you restore your faith in it. Alessia writes, this is an ideological court now with no regard for public perception or preferences or court precedents. We need a rotating Supreme Court where there is a larger roster of judges that rotate in and out, one that is more politically balanced. Thinking about ideology, one of the things that, of course, has come up, Dahlia Lithwick, is Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Jimmy Ginny Thomas, and her role in terms of supporting the insurrectionists on January 6th, and also in terms of um, the fact that her influence on him has been documented, that there's this oneness. How, how does Clarence Thomas maintain integrity as a justice with a spouse who is not only ideologically very, very hard right, but I believe has has been part of the the documentation related to cases that come before him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is the sticky wicket. Um, it goes a little bit to Alicia's point about public confidence in the court, and, and that is that the court, as a rulemaking entity, right, that decides the law for everyone in every way has actually got almost no rules that it applies to itself, right? So uh, Mark Joseph Stern and I wrote a piece last week saying, why is there no inspector general at the court? That's shocking. Uh, all sorts of other entities have an inspector general to make sure that the court's living up to its ethical obligations. None at the court. The court has no recusal or ethic rules that apply to itself. The, both the federal rules and the judicial canons that apply to other federal judges are just advisory to the court. They can follow them or not. When it uh, became clear that Justice Thomas's wife, as you say, was texting with Mark Meadows, urging him to work to set aside uh, the 2020 election results, uh, there was no investigation. There was no call for anyone to do anything. I think folks thought John Roberts could do something. John Roberts has no sway over Clarence mm. Thomas. Uh, so we have a bunch of folks who are just the Wild West. The rules don't apply to them. And then you get massive egregious misconduct, uh, including, by the way, financial conflicts of interest. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. And mm. the court that simply says, don't care. Well, then add to that, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, basically at an event following the leaked draft, commented on the public outcry by saying that we've become addicted to wanting particular outcomes and not living with the outcomes we don't like. And Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York had a very strong response to that that I, I would like to play right now. 
If Justice Thomas really wants to deal with bullying in America or this problem of people supposedly unwilling to accept outcomes that they don't like, I've got some advice for Justice Thomas. Start in your own home. Have a conversation with Jeannie Thomas. She refused to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. Why? Because she didn't like the outcome. And so instead, she tried to steal the election, overthrow the United States government, and install a tyrant. That's bullying. I think that comment is extraordinary to me for a couple of, of reasons, but I just want to get your reaction to it first. No, I mean, I, I think I said something similar uh, on TV last night that you can't say other people are being crybabies and not accepting outcomes they don't like, and it damages the institution of the court, is what Justice Thomas said, while your own spouse is damaging the institution of both the presidency and uh, uh, the Congress by trying to set aside an election. And so I think, you know, part of it is the hypocrisy. There's also like a little bit of a trolley vibe <laughs> when Justice Thomas does things like that, where you just feel like he's saying it. He's not unaware of the paradox. He's a smart guy. Uh, so then it feels like he's just saying things like that to kind of get a reaction. That's the part of it that is really shocking to me. That kind of trolley feeling really is shot through in Justice Alito's opinion, where mm. time and time again, given the choice to do this in a sort of high-minded doctrinal way, he does it in a kind of creepy AM radio way that feels like he's just owning the libs. And I think those kinds of moments are really chilling because it suggests, as one of your um, letter writers wrote, that the court actually not only doesn't care what you think, but isn't even pretending to care. Yes, I, I'm so glad you said that is what strikes me about it is just this sense of there isn't even attempt, an attempt, right, to not, to, to conduct yourself in a way where at least you could be perceived as regarding the public in a political um, Dahlia Lithwick is talking with us about the things that are contributing to people's concerns about the Supreme Court. She's senior editor for Slate and covers the Supreme Court in her column, Jurisprudence, and co-hosts the podcast, Amicus. You, our listeners, are joining us with your opinion of the Supreme Court. And also, we'd love your thoughts on what it would take to restore your faith if it has been lost. Stay with us for more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Slate senior editor Dahlia Lithwick is with us today. She's the host of the podcast Amicus. We're talking about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in light of the many political incidents the court has been wrapped up in recently and in past years and several other things that you, our listeners, are raising. And we invited you, our listeners, to weigh in as well on how you're feeling about the court, good or bad. Christine writes, I lost respect for the court with the Citizens United case. Allowing corporations to be considered as a person, allowing money to flow into politics is the worst decision in my lifetime. If they do overturn Roe, where are we headed? David writes, my confidence in the court was shaken by the Bush v. Gore decision, and all decisions since then simply confirm the justices are purely political and their decisions are disingenuous gymnastics to create an argument. We need this problem resolved. More transparency and limits to lifetime appointments may be the only way to set things straight. And Kyla writes, I see the court's direction as another piece of evidence that this country will break apart due to the electoral college counting method. One political party has discovered a way to exploit the system so they can control the White House, Senate, Congress, and Supreme Court with a shrinking minority of the country's support. They are not cheating. These were the rules baked into the country when it was founded. And let me go to William in Belvedere. Hi, William. Yes, thank you very much. I would like to uh, echo the sentiments that you just raised. The question was, can um, have you lost confidence in the court? Well, I certainly have not lost confidence because somebody cannot lose something that they never possessed. <laughs> and so since I've never had confidence in the court, uh, there's nothing to lose. Uh, there's, of course, a lot for the American public to, be- to lose. If they believe that uh, the court is objective and the members of the court are objective, um, I think that uh, it stems, and I'd appreciate comments perhaps from the guests about this. People want to believe in things, whether it's religion or the court or the sanctity of the Constitution or whatever. They want to believe in something, the, the, the Ten Commandments, whatever it is. Uh, that It is from that that I think that confidence in institutions that are created by people derives from that. It's a bigger problem that people want to believe in things, even if what's right before them indicates that they shouldn't believe. Mm. Well, William, thanks. I I guess, well, I, I, I'd love your reaction to that, Dahlia. I, I do wonder, though, if the abstraction that uh, an institution, you know, is... <sighs> is legitimate, is working in the interest of the people, has its has its value, even if maybe it isn't entirely true. Well, you know, this is going to sound really ironic, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is, especially since we were talking about religion with Greg, but I think that one of the sort of best and worst things about Americans uh, is that for a ostensibly secular country, uh, the court is the high church, right? And it's designed that way. I mean, they operate in what looks like a sort of oracular marble temple. They walk around, you know, hushed in in black robes. Um, You know, it really is, the constitution as a founding document is the closest thing to a sacred text. And that seems terrible when they betray you. But as William just said, it's really, really important if you believe in the rule of law, right? Because we're sitting here and we're frustrated, but don't forget the court also gave us Brown v. Gord. 
a board. It gave us Loving versus Virginia, right? Striking down laws that said uh, the races couldn't marry. It gave us Griswold versus Connecticut. It gave us Obergefell. It gave us marriage equality. And all those things happen and people don't take to the streets and fight it out with knives in the streets because the rule of law is such that people really do, as William says, want to believe that in a country governed by the rule of law, we can resolve these things peacefully. And so it's really, really important. And I, and I kind of want to say this because I, I, I'm hearing everyone's frustration and I'm sharing it. But I also want to say there is a non-trivial chance that the 2024 election is, goes to the Supreme Court and I think it would be terrible for the country if the court makes a decision and everyone decides to just ignore it and fight it out, right? Um, you know, on the streets. Yes. And in fact, Bush v. Gore is, although we may not like the outcome, Justice Breyer always says the fact that Americans who didn't like that outcome, it didn't correspond with their votes, lived with it is a good thing. It's something that suggests that the rule of law still lives. It's one of the reasons Breyer's on the losing side of everything and still writing books saying we're not partisan. So I think we need to think about ways not to trammel the court because there's no plan B when the rule of law is gone, but to build up and bolster the institution. So it's one that is both nonpartisan and fair again. So it can continue to do things like Obergefell, like Roe, which make us all freer. I think in your answer, you're describing really what's kind of at the heart of this conversation, which is what happens to a democracy like ours if our highest court loses its legitimacy in the public's eyes or, or so diminished in its standing. And I mean, I think, you know, as you were saying in the streets, I guess is the thing that's sort of a scary thought. But yes, just in terms of its orders and decisions being respected is a reflection of the rule of law uh, being being paramount in this country, being what is respected in this country. And if that is gone, that is such a problem. Let me read a couple more opinions coming in. Kate writes, I'm a Canadian living in California and am no longer shocked by anything coming out of this or any branch of this country's government. The Supreme Court lost any legitimacy when it ruled for corporations and Citizen United, rolling back voting rights under the flimsy and false pretext that racism isn't a problem anymore, further eroded my belief that they would ever rule in favor of the weak and oppressed. Originalism is an insidious word designed to maintain racial and class hierarchies under the shield of plausible deniability. Dahlia, you talk about bolstering our institutions, but I want to ask you about this leak because a lot of people are pointing to it as really a crack that is going to be hard to mend uh, in this institution. Can I ask you what you think of of that leak, besides the fact that it that it paints a picture of a court in, in disarray, essentially, really, I, I do it. I do want to know the importance of of this or the impact of this in terms of the way the court will function. Yeah, this is, you know, when we were talking about the, you know, different pieces of legitimacy, I, I said that I think the leak is its own absolute thunderclap. And for folks who don't follow the day-to-day -day workings of the court, it's easy to say, oh, every institution leaks. But we have simply never in history had a leak on this order of magnitude. And I would also say, we're now at about leak seven or eight, uh, depending on how you're counting, because not only did we have the document leaked, 
Uh, we had subsequent leaks to CNN about the chief justice's posture. Then we had leaks over this weekend where uh, we heard that there's not another draft circulating. At some point, we had a leak where somebody, quote unquote, close to the conservatives uh, was talking about how they wanted to punish John Roberts for flipping his vote in the Obamacare case. So we have leaks piled upon leaks. And I think anyone who said this was just a janitor or a secretary uh, now has to reconcile themselves to the fact that these leaks are coming from the very top. These are authorized leaks that are coming uh, about deliberations that uh, secretaries do not know about. And this goes to the heart of your question, which is when you have justices who are perfectly comfortable or their clerks, I guess, talking repeatedly uh, to the public in not just in an effort to undermine uh, the chief justice, which it certainly looks like this week's leaks uh, are seeking to do that. You know, the idea was that the chief justice might be able to pick off a couple of votes and have a moderate position that was not as extreme as overturning Roe. Looks like that's not going to happen and looks like the leaking is uh, quite, I, I think, explicitly happening to tune him up and show him that, you know, he, he um, defected in the Obamacare and he's not going to do it again. But it's really hard to imagine how the justices sit in conference, uh, formerly believing that they had a norm of absolute secrecy and confidence, and that that is just blown full of holes now. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. There's two layers. There's public confidence in the court that is witnessing these shocking and very partisan political leaks, but then the court's confidence in itself. Yes. And I would speculate that it will take years and years for the justices to feel that they can trust each other again. There's also been a suggestion that without that open deliberative process that we will see less careful, maybe less moderate decisions coming out of this court. What do you think? Well, I think that's already clear uh, yeah. from Justice Alito's draft. I think mm. if you look at this draft opinion where he's taken a brick bat. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.